Well, we've got a decent number of downloads for the last episode. Our usual listeners seem to enjoy it, and a few new ones. But, Richard, are you any closer to understanding the wider podcast listening audience? I'm afraid not, Giles. They're a completely alien species. Yes, I know. I have been on Twitter. Hmm. How can we speak their kind of language? Well, clearly our podcast isn't getting through to them. We need some sort of translation machine. Or couldn't you just edit them better? Well, maybe. But I can only remove things from what we originally said. I dare say I could build a translator if I had the proper equipment. I was going to build one, but I never got round to it. You've got your chance now. Well, I shall need a lot of expensive equipment. This is something who? You've got £2.50. Hmm. Very well. I might have to cannibalise some of the equipment in the something who bunker, like this uh, door lock. Hang on. Someone's just burst through the door. It's Gaff. Gentlemen. Hello. How on earth did you find us? Gaff has been in the bunker before. You're not surprised to see me? Not particularly, no. Our guests usually come back. I'm surprised to see you. I thought I'd successfully killed your podcast last time. Well, despite your efforts, people listened to us anyway, didn't they, Giles? Must have been my fascinating explanations of astrophysics. I've returned to finish the matter myself. I'm sorry, gentlemen, but this podcast ends now. It's my moral duty. But we've watched both of the stories. Have we got in the wine? And the cheese and sticks? And there's lots of science to talk about. It'd be rude not to give it a go. Did you say wine and science? Oh, go on then. Play the theme. So we're going to kick off by talking about Dalek Invasion of Earth, written by Terry Nation, directed by Richard Martin. It's the second story of season two, right at the end of 1964. My initial thought when I watched this, and I have to say I probably haven't watched it in about 10 years, was this is recorded right at the end of the first series of Doctor Who. I mean, they hadn't stopped for a break since recording the first one, but it feels like they've forgotten how to do it. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) The TARDIS is kind of a bit beaten up and the windows are falling in. The Daleks don't look or sound quite like they did. And they can't even get the extermination sound effect right. It just seems a little bit odd to me. I don't know if if any of you had any thoughts on that. Interesting, isn't it? Because in later years, we'll get used to the fact that the last story in a production block will look a bit tatty because they've run out of money. So there might be a few Mm. black backcloths where we once would have had a nice shiny set and so on. And, you know... The budgetary constraints will be seen in various ways. But this isn't that, is it? All right. It doesn't look expensive. It looks like there has been money spent on it. But it also looks like it hasn't always been spent in the best ways or to the best effect. So is this because of its position at the end of the series? Or are you just saying you think they should have learnt more? I don't really know what to make of it, to be honest. They should be like a well-oiled machine by this point. Does anything directed by Richard Martin feel like a well-oiled machine? <laughs> well, yeah. Kevin suggested a particular single point of failure, a particular weak spot in this production that might explain everything we've, we've noticed. There is a great sense of that'll do. 
I mean, throughout a lot of his work. Yeah. Mm. It mixes some quite clever stuff. I thought, oh, that's an interesting camera angle. I didn't expect yeah. that to be. Yeah. It mixes these quite experimental and interesting moments with absolute bathos. You know, the, the most yeah. pedestrian stuff you can imagine. And it's I was pleasantly surprised because I'm having, again, not seen it for a good few years. I was kind of expecting it to be pretty pedestrian throughout. And so there were, there were things that I thought, OK, that's interestingly done. And then it was clunking back to Earth a few minutes later. Some of the ambition is also the architect of its own downfall. And, and it's odd that Richard Martin sees certain things as potentially injecting some dynamism, like the high camera angle that you mentioned, mm. which immediately ruins the cardboard cutout Daleks and the mm. and the backcloth. It, it's like it's, um, it's fighting with itself over w- what the best approach is to take. And, and mm. it kind of falls between two stools. His blocking is never as tight as it should be. And I think that's probably the single biggest failure is everything being in place to look great and then a slightly sloppy style of execution Mm. just leads to things being seen that you're not meant to see, people not being in the right position. I went into this wondering if perhaps... I mean, that's what I'd always assumed, that it was Richard Martin almost solely that was letting the side down. I went in thinking perhaps I'd see something differently this time, but I didn't. Almost everyone else is doing their best work and he's not. And he's filtering it incorrectly to the viewer. I also thought to myself, am I being unfair? I mean, it's about time we're overdue a discussion of Richard Martin because I, well, because I've been <laughs> criticising him on podcasts for, for years now and um, <laughs> j- just in very offhand ways. So I think perhaps I ought to explain exactly what what my problem is but Gav's got there first it's, it seems to be a, a misunderstanding of what you can and can't get away with in, in a small studio hmm. and you can't fault him for lack of ambition can you? But other people do better with the same resources That's for example, hmm. Dougie Campbell for example hmm. I mean we never get to see what it'd be like in a really tight character piece set in an elevator Maybe maybe it'd be brilliant at that. We don't maybe it'd be just as terrible at that. I don't I don't it know. It would still all but be he, in long shots somehow. But they could <laughs> have the camera him. outside the building. Yeah. If there was an excuse to have all your cars scattered to the four corners of the room, he would still have them all stood lined up as if they were on the narrowest proscenium arch stage in theatre land. Reciting their lines in turn. The the film stuff is really quite good. Particularly that bit where you've got Dortmund lying on the ground and he's shooting above that through a gap and there's the milk float or whatever it is coming out of the the building i mean all, mm. that's rather nice there's all that stuff in central london i mean at least it's recognizably central london so that's a bit surprising for this era of doctor who can i disagree with that slightly go on then as a kid i was overexposed to the images of the daleks on westminster bridge yeah. it's an iconic yeah, sure. image yeah and it was an enormous disappointment <laughs> to see it on vhs that's and that shot gonna... isn't yeah. in it and not only is no. it not in it but the angle that he chose is so poor and so that shot of of basically just the domes and the necks above the railing of the bridge is so disappointing compared to the imagery that one might think you were going to get. You couldn't choose an angle that would sell that moment any less, could you? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there might as well just be. It might as well just be there. To me before, the domes yeah. on a stick being walked along by mm. a load of yeah. on any bridge. Yeah, as you say, from the from the photographs, we know they were up there. We know it yes. was, mm. was deserted. <laughs> so he took the still cameras up there, but not. The, I agree with both of you. There's some really nice angles in the film stuff and some other angles that make you think that those were just flukes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and weird designs like Daleks doing Nazi salutes. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that was him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Mr. Nation. You've, have you seen the script, Gav? 
Yeah, no, there's no, there's nothing in the script like that. No. Talking about the ambition versus the execution, the idea to have the Dalek coming out of the Thames, which is fantastic. Yeah. Let's go and realise this on the banks of the Thames in real life. It kind of works on location. The Dalek's in about a foot of water. It doesn't pan out, so they have to restage it in studio. And the same failing happens again the next time they do it for the chase. Mm. Let's go and do it for mm. real. And people were warning him, this ain't going to work. Just don't bother trying. And it failed, and they had to remount it again, this time as a model shot. It's that ambition versus practicality. I get a sense that he doesn't have an enormous, strong feel for what is practical and how things will pan out, but he has lofty ideas about things mm. that might look good. Mm. Which is obviously why they brought him back for the web planet, because that's exactly the sort of gung-ho, can-do attitude <laughs> that you need. <laughs> I would love to know the actual financial situation that surrounded, for instance, the realisation of the jungle of Mechanus versus the jungle of Kemble, for argument's sake. Is that purely a budgetary thing? Does it cost that much more to hire pot plants than to paint a (laughs) net curtain with a rubbish bit of vine? The Jungle of Mechanus is an excruciating disappointment every time I watch it. I feel really guilty about this because he was a really lovely chap the one time I met him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) At the anniversary. Just because he wears a cravat doesn't mean he's lovely. True, but I got to have a little chat with him and Toby. and He wasn't lovely about Terry Nation, though, was he? Was he not? Ah. Richard Martin's opinion of Terry Nation scripts. He was an effing awful writer, lazy and arrogant. <laughs> he would have been excellent at writing cartoon strips for the Daily Express. It was that standard. <laughs> David Whittaker had to patch up Nation's appalling scripts. I'm talking again with Chris Chapman, a man of many talents, but among them is putting together these fantastic documentaries for the Doctor Who Blu-ray collections. Uh, I mean, I guess talking about about the the, um, Sarah Jane documentary, I... So I watched that yesterday again. I mean, I, I watched it when it first came out, but I wanted to have another another go at it. And it, it, it's I find it very interesting because, I mean, there were, there were things about that film that hit me quite hard the first time around. I, I guess... You know, you've got all the stuff at the end about about you know how her dying affected the young audience so much, and that, you know that that was a and, and David Tennant uh, quite a, a, emotional at times in there. But but this time round, and it, and it, it's it's a very personal thing. I mean, I have recently had to say goodbye to to a close work colleague, and then uh, Tom was doing the same thing, talking about about his relationship with Liz and. To some extent, I mean, you know, clearly he was emotional about the fact that she was no longer around. But that moment, that moment when, when they when they were no longer working, it, there was a, there's a lovely line that you put in at the start where he just says, "You give up fun very reluctantly." You know, it, 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 that, that spoke to me really clearly. Yeah, about even though it is just work, I mean, it is just a job, but nonetheless, you do c- connect with people in the course of work, and it, and it and it and it does mean something. And you know that when the work comes to an end, it's never quite going to be the same again. And I, I thought you you just captured that, you know, both the happiness and the regret in the same moment so so beautifully. Thank you. Well, no, thank you. I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that came over. Yeah, it, it's. I think we we were very lucky with with Tom, and 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 I can't really, you know, it, the lovely thing about these films is they kind of exist as a as a piece of living matter, and. You know, I I don't script Tom. You know, we we purely we went and filmed with Tom in his favourite pub, uh, in the back room that he prefers to film with, and and I and all we could really do was create 
a nice relaxed atmosphere for, for Tom really you know was was I had a, a set of questions and uh, I had a chat with Lewis with me and a, and a makeup artist and basically we we were just very nice to Tom we just had a lovely time with him and and we didn't I, I think it's important not to jazz things up as being too melodramatic or important when you sit down with a person in that situation yeah. you want it just yeah. to be like okay Tom what do you what do you have to say and and I'll ask Tom questions but really a lot of that power just comes from what Tom brought to the table on the day uh, I think mm-hmm. we got him just at a really good moment uh, and I've interviewed Tom before and, he, and he's been great before but there's something about Liz that kind of really unlocks his yeah. heart really you know that he, he he genuinely loved her and continues to love her and you'll talk to other companion actors who will say oh yeah he really had a you know, he really loved Liz, then he really had had a real soft spot for her, and and, and yeah. I think to quite a profound level. And as Tom gets older, and I'm sure as he always has deals with his own mortality, kind of face on. I think he, I think he is a, a an emotional, heartfelt kind of guy when you strip that away. And and maybe he got tougher skin as he went through the role of Doctor Who, as he went through those seven years. Yeah. But early on, Liz was the kind of first happy face he saw. You know, Liz was. You know, and and yeah. the doctor talks about that, doesn't he? Is that with, uh, is that Matt Smith? Is that is that like a, an an Amy thing that that he talks about? Yours was the first, the first happy face. You know, the first smile that I saw. That that, that it's almost like Liz imprinted mm-hmm. on him, and he he never forgot that. So I think we we were very lucky, and I and I tried not to talk too much. I tried to you know to steer Tom and to provoke him and 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 really just give him chapter headings and say, okay, now let's talk about turning the lights on in Blackpool, you know, and now let's talk about Liz's, her, her kind of farewell party and, and, and things like that party that they had at the Hilton. I don't, I don't think he's really talked particularly about no. before, but he just needs that nudge to go, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. And, and, and suddenly you've accessed, uh, as for all of us, you know, you need a nudge to access those memories. And, and, I, and I like those films because it's not like a making of where you're obligated to tell this happened yeah. and this happened and this happened. And inevitably that means you have to go down some well-trod roads. I think with, with a character study, you can kind of come at it in the way that, that, that feels right. Because you're never going to say everything. You can never say, yeah. you could say everything you that could ever be needed to be said about Fury from the Deep, but you can't say everything ever that needed to be said about Liz Sladen because any life no. is, is too big. So you, you can be more subjective. You can be more twisty turning and and I think with all of with that film certainly it was a, a big case of kind of working out who we could speak to yeah. and and almost making a list at the beginning of the, I wouldn't script a film like that but I would write down the chapter headings and say mm-hmm. obviously if we're going to tell the story we need to how do we tell the story of Liz as a child how do we tell teenage Liz in Liverpool yeah. Can we use Coronation Street clips to tell? No, we can't afford that. Okay, we can afford a photo. Okay, we skip Coronation Street. Okay, now she's joining Doctor Who. Oh, wow. Okay, we got loads of people to talk about that. Okay, so who who can give me? Let's talk to George Galaccio because maybe he can give us a more ground level view of a friend rather than yes. automatically going for the showbiz co-stars. And then how do we talk about Liz after Doctor Who and and how do we talk about oh she's come back in 2006 oh loads of people can talk about that and it's kind of feast or famine there are kind of areas where you think I could blow my budget and my filming days on loads of people to talk about Doctor Who but I don't need loads of people to talk about Doctor Who I need 
three people maybe to talk about <laughs> about 70s Doctor Who and yeah. so I, I, I want Tom I want Philip Hinchcliffe I want uh, I was really interested actually I hadn't initially thought of having Louise Jameson involved because I thought well you you, you came after so yeah. did you work with, but obviously particularly someone like Louise who's very emotionally savvy yeah. and intelligent has been around the convention circuit so can suddenly give you a perspective on Liz in those yeah. years and also that that baton passing of yes. of Liz leaving and Louise coming in and that sense of an absence that Tom seems to have articulated by being quite quite mean and beastly to Louise in those when they initially worked together because of the absence of Liz I think because he not because he in any way disliked Louise I genuinely don't yes. think he did he may have disliked the ethos of the character uh, but more than anything he missed Liz <laughs> he, you know he'd just been almost dumped you know by his platonic life partner and, yeah. and then you suddenly realize where your gaps are you suddenly think okay if we're going to do Liz's childhood I can't have a single person talking about this for 15 minutes it is almost impossible to start your film with a single voice that takes you through an extended section without it feeling just a bit a bit dry or just just uh-huh. not, not not full of life enough and and so it became a big thing of the involvement of Liz's family and and Sadie and Brian I yeah. I, I met with and, and and Brian I think uh is is just by his nature quite a reserved quite a shy guy and was very supportive but kind of said I don't think I can do this and I think that was just a very personal decision for him yeah. and uh, fortunately amazingly Sadie very much was no I can I can do this and yeah. I want to help and gave us this wonderful interview that kind of did everything you would hope yeah. for her to do and and meant that because kind of if those two people say no you kind of need to cancel the film yeah. I think yeah. if certainly if those two people say we want we don't want this to happen you kind of have to cancel the film. <laughs> I, yeah. I do think, unless you're dealing with some kind of already contentious or political public figure, you know, if you were making a film about Boris Johnson, you wouldn't you wouldn't care what Boris Johnson thought about it or his family <laughs> if he died particularly. But if you were making a heartfelt love letter <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the family don't want you to make it, then uh, you're, you're, you're done, really. <laughs> that, that, that's the end. So so it was, it was saying, okay, we've got Sadie for this bit. Let's, and through the family, we were able to contact kind of old friends of Liz's from that time and get them involved. And and you, you piece it together until you've got a filming day, until you've got, in this case, I think we did it over like about six or so days where it would be me and an assistant would travel to usually the homes of those people at, or, or somewhere nearby and, and we'd film with them with an eye direct. So where we put like a sideways uh, periscope in front of the camera. Okay. So that they're looking physically looking at the camera straight yeah. down the lens, meeting the eye of the viewer. But actually, what they're seeing in the camera is my eyes, is my face reflected from a sideways mirror. Okay. <laughs> so, so, and because if you set up somebody yes. in front of a camera and they're just looking at the lens, you can't make an emotional connection unless you're an amazing presenter who gets paid lots of money to do that. So, you need <laughs> a human connection to be able to, yeah. to to speak honestly. The problem is when I watch it now after the pandemic, all I can bloody think of is Zoom calls. That, 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 whole, <laughs> that whole style of iDirect, which has, you know, has come through, for me, has come through like Channel 4 documentaries and so on, now feels a bit odd because we're just so used to seeing somebody looking straight down the camera lens. And somebody said on a forum recently, oh, was this film during the pandemic? 
have they filmed this film? No, 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 we were doing it artistically. Ah, and, and so the world has changed in, in that way. Uh, I'm rambling now, Richard, but, uh, <laughs> no, but, but no, it, it was a really lovely project to, yeah. to piece together. And most like the John Nathan Turner one, that where it was, we had a lot of words that I was then, you know, shaping into a narrative. And with with all these films, I kind of feel the most important thing for me is to tell the story as if you don't know the ending. So to tell the yeah. story in the now without any pre-knowledge. And when I think of like the documentaries that I've loved in recent years, you know, even going back to things like Senna and more recently, there was an amazing film about the Challenger disaster on Netflix yeah. that did a really good job of, of, you know, it gave you a bit at the beginning, just like we do to say, here's the thing that you know about, hey. And then it goes back to zero. And it yeah. tells you the story step by step, not messing about with it, not jumping around, but just saying this happened and then this happened and then this happened and this happened. And we lose that chronology sometimes when you look back on a thing, when you think about like the pandemic or you think about yeah. somebody's career or your own life, you lose a sense of, oh yeah, that was happening at the same time as that. Oh, and that happened oh, the yes. day before that. And then, oh, so that contributed. That was part of, you lose all that. And and we, we're so keen sometimes to be miniature Quentin Tarantinos and jump around and be start with the ending and then go back and mm-hmm. yeah I think sometimes there's a real power to saying this happened then this happened then this happened and with Liz you've got this perfect story of somebody who gets big you know becomes a a genuinely loved star and then loses it and and mm-hmm. through no fault of her own but gets typecast gets stuck and gets in the doldrums I, I think and, and and then comes back you know, the, the, yeah. most of those stories end quite sadly. But with Liz, yes. you had a story where, you know, you've got this beautiful arc where she she does get a happy ending. And obviously, ultimately, we lose her far too soon. But I think there's something... I don't think it's like the John Nathan Turner story where the first half is up and the second half is down. Quite, yeah. quite, um, quite powerfully, strikingly so. I think with Liz, yeah. it's... I think it does end... I think the second half of the film is an up her death is almost like this bittersweet frustration because you're 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 so sad to lose a friend you're so upset to lose a friend but you're so glad that she had what she had in those last yeah. i guess those last kind of 5 5 10 years or yeah. so you know she had such uh, for somebody who was i think quite insecure and not really aware of her worth or how good she was i think to get this absolutely winning endorsement to say yeah. No, you're wrong. The universe loves you. Uh, yeah. I think is so powerful. Obviously, yeah, I, I, we'd, we'd we'd rather still have her, but I think it's an amazing story to get to tell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was saying to someone the other, the other day that it, it's it's such a shame sometimes that you don't say the thing that you want to say until somebody dies. You know, if if, if it's if it's a eulogy, but but I guess with Liz people were able to say those things while she was still alive as a result of her turning back up in school reunion and then getting her own series. So she did get to see all of that love, you know, played out uh, beforehand. So, so, so that was excellent. I think the other thing that I, that I particularly liked about your film was the uh, Alan Akebourne angle and sort of getting to see how, uh, you know, th- that whole kind of stage acting side of her, because I think a lot of the, of the potted sort of, biographical bits I'd seen about it kind of just focused on the TV stuff and kind of left out all of that and yet you can sort of see that that was that was such a, a big foundation of, of, of what she did later 
Yeah, and I'm a complete, I'm a complete tart for that kind of thing, really, because I, I kind of, you read her, her book, her memoir, and you think, oh, I didn't know she worked with Alan Aitborn. I wonder if Alan Aitborn would do our film. That would be amazing. So you think, first of all, that this is somebody you would not expect to see on a Doctor Who doc. No. I know Alan Aitborn will not be famous to everybody, but to a lot of people, he, he is, he's, a, yeah. he's a massive figure and, and an incredibly influential chap. And the idea that Liz, that for both of them, it was the beginning. You know, it was the beginning of their careers. And I thought, well, that's going to be memorable times. That's not just going to be a job for Alan. That's going to be formative. And unfortunately, Alan has a very good archive and a, an archivist who works with him. And so they had loads of photos. That's often the tricky thing with theatre. That's often why theatre can be difficult to explore yeah. in this kind of film, because you can't go to a clip. Yeah, You can't even go to an audio recording like you would on a radio play or something. You you only have photos, and maybe you don't have photos. And if you don't have photos, you're kind of... If you have no archive, if you have nothing to cut away to, unless you have loads of interviewees, you're kind of screwed. And yeah. and so we were just very lucky to be able to do that and then chart her theatre through through Liverpool and Manchester. And fortunately, they had lots of photos as well. And I think... I, I loved seeing her on... Those photos of her on stage yeah. at, at, the, at the Library Theatre, I think where she just is is I guess, in her early 20s and you, you kind of feel like you're seeing just another angle on the Liz that you remember as mm. a child. So no, I, I, and there's a freshness to that that I, I kind of hope every time we take the Doctor Who fan to somewhere that's related to what they love, but something yeah. they haven't seen before, that that's always a win, you know, that's always a, a success. So we, I wanted to make sure it wasn't kind of autistically, not in a bad way, but but kind of obsessively Doctor Who, you know, had to be prepared to go to other places. Next up, we've got Crimson Horror, or The Crimson Horror? I guess so. Um, By Mark Gatiss, directed by Saul Metstein, 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 Mm -hmm. which apparently is the hundredth story of of New Doctor Who. Oh. Something told me earlier today. The Stones of Blood of New Doctor Who. Mm. Apparently. Is there a deleted scene with a with a birthday cake, <laughs> I said that in a Strax voice for some reason. Yeah, yeah, with with, with, um, with Mr. Sweet. Mm. Mm. So this is set in in Yorkshire in 1893. I mean, uh, I don't want to start copying from the very beginning, but yeah. I, I may have to point out that Yorkshire is the largest county in England. So describing something as being in Yorkshire isn't really narrowing it down all that much. I, I'm going to suggest it's perhaps the West Riding. If only because it feels like Sweetville is a sort of mashup of of Bourneville and Saltaire, and Saltaire mm-hmm. is definitely in the West Riding. Uh-huh. So uh, I'm, I'm going to nail that as pr- the probable location, sort of somewhere outside Bradford. Well, that's um, a weight off my mind. Yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> Diana Vig came from Doncaster as well, didn't she? So and famously, oh, good, good knowledge. Got to use her uh, native accent. Yeah, I mean, something good had to come out of Doncaster, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, that's, that's, that's my Yorkshire prejudice. It's the wrong side of the uh, M62. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, he's off the leash, listeners. <laughs> yeah, and it's the other end of the 19th century. I, I, I mean, I I'd remembered them both as being uh, 19th century, but, but they are uh, from opposite ends of it. It's it's a second outing, I think, for the Paternoster gang, or at least if they're in their Victorian setting. I suppose they've all they've been in season six as well. So what struck me about this one 
which I really quite enjoyed. I mean, I, 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 so, so I'll say, like every other piece of Doctor Who that we've ever done on this, I'd almost completely forgotten it. I mean, I remembered it was set in Yorkshire, that, that was a, a, a sort of industrial revolution kind of setting to it. But I, I thought it was, it, was, it was a very fun episode. But it's this, this interesting aspect to it that basically the Doctor and Clara have messed up badly this time. And if it wasn't for the fact that that bloke in his dying moment stumbles in to the Doctor and coincidentally gets the image imprinted on his eye, which then Madame Hadastra happens to see, mm. that's it for them. That's that's the end of Doctor Who, isn't it? <laughs> that is... Oh, it's a very good point. And you've also ruined it for me now. <laughs> I'm just now furiously crossing out all the, all the notes I've got about why this is so good. It's clearly trash of the of the lowest order no, I, think it, I, I think it's really good it's just it's just in, just a point it's, that it's occurred to me just an observation it's not in any way i mean it wouldn't be a better just, i'm just thinking now it's not it wouldn't be in any way a better story if the doctor had somehow cleverly engineered this man to you know mm. if this had been i reckon if this had been moffat it mm. would have been revealed that he had cleverly en- engineered to leave an imprint of his face on the retina of mm. somebody who he knew would then come into contact he would have engineered the entire thing mm. and it would he would have travelled back in time at the end. That would not in any way have been a better story, but it's no. just, you've got me thinking now about um, different approaches. I like it. I love the structure. Is, is it deliberately, do you think, a folly v- version of it, though, in the sense that there is no factory? Mm. There's, 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 no, there's no thing that they're actually making. It's just a model community yes. with yeah. a rocket in the middle of it that they're going, you know, so mm. it's a folly version of it. Yeah, oh, good point, yeah. I mean, it always reminds me of uh, Willy Wonka, that sort of um, trope. There's the line about nobody who goes and ever comes out again, and that's the line that I always remember about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That uh, yeah, oh, ever... yes, because that was a lo- that was the question I got wrong in the Junior Mastermind competition when I was ten. <laughs> that's why I'm never going to forget. That. There's one thing I'm never going to forget about Willy bloody Wonka. Mm. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I I, I had Charlie and the fo- Chocolate Factory down as another. Reference and to be honest, with it with it being called Sweetville, I'd forgotten that it yeah. wasn't a, and especially with everyone coming out pink, I'd, I'd mm. kind of forgotten that it wasn't meant to be a sweet factory and much more definitely referencing Bourneville or anything like that. There are some hints that it could have either he had more ideas than he needed and he couldn't bear to let any of them go. Mm. There's, there's a, <laughs> quite a few half developed ones in there, but it's not not to its detriment yeah. for mm. once. I really like the reveal of the speakers. <laughs> yeah. The speakers mm, creating yes. the factory noise. That's a neat mm, yeah. extra. And it doesn't really go anywhere and it doesn't really need to. It's uh, it's a great it's a great visual. Mm. The other reveal where they allow Clara's clever bit, which she always has to have, is when she points out that there's a chimney that has no smoke coming out of it. Mm. So the uncanny element. And that um, that's the sort of trick they use a lot in this genre, the little whodunit style clue. Mm. The, the sweet name comes from the fact that Dr. Matthew Sweet is Matthew, the yes. progenitor of a lot of the ideas in this, or at least oh, okay, conversation yes. with him. So, mm. so Mr. Lord. Sweet is named after Matthew Sweet. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> it feels like a bit one of his, like, a bit like one of his Jago and Lightfoots. I'd tell you a, a really embarrassing story about when I met uh, Matthew Sweet. Yes, please. I was at an event and uh, was speaking to some friends, and he he came up and joined the group. And I don't know whether I don't know what he'd just been doing but he'd either he'd either seen himself in the mirror or he was watching himself on a monitor or something but he 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 said he he'd become preoccupied with the way his ears looked <laughs> and i was in one of those moods i just had a i just had a 
rush of blood and a moment of, of overconfidence and in my ill-advised sense of humour, I looked at him and went, oh my God, yes, your ears. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I mean, I thought it was hilarious, yeah. but it went down about as well as you can expect. Oh. So, yeah. Are you hoping he's going to be listening so there's going to be a backdoor apology? Uh, I did subsequently apologise, oh. and I think he... Because he won't be. Just ignore If this me. isn't on going out on Radio 3, you won't be listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, think you, 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 might, you, might have, you might have got so far as to the fact that he completely forgotten about it. <laughs> um, possibly. I mean, it's you know. Just come back. Make an impression. <laughs> yeah. I, I also met Matthew Sweet at an event, and I, I, I almost mugged him. Because I, because I thought, you know, you've got to take these opportunities when you see someone. I wanted to talk to him very briefly about the interview things off the Blu-rays. So I, I had a, a slightly over-enthusiastic discussion with him about that. Uh, which He was so enamoured by the conversation that he faked a call from Paul Venezis. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, of course, he may have had a call from Paul Venezis, but he's but he, but he certainly... We've he's, all he's, done he's, it. He certainly, certainly claimed to have a call from Paul Venezis and disappeared... <laughs> Uh, into the scenery, so yeah, <laughs> we both had similar success there. Mm. <laughs> well, I tr- no, never mind. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I've got one, I'm not gonna. Yes, we, we I, had a nice conversation at the tavern once. Okay. Um, mm. Obviously, he was trying to flog me in an episode of Web of Fear three, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think he slipped into Venezes on the uh, when he went to get the tube home, but. <laughs> <laughs> And the whole modern myth of Wyatt Earp has grown out of a, a largely fictional mm. biography that was written after he died. I mean, and it didn't, it didn't even happen at the OK Corral, but uh, gunfight at CS Flies Photographic right. Studio <laughs> presumably <laughs> wouldn't have been so catchy. <laughs> so, yeah, Cotton has made a conscious decision to discard the actual history yeah. because he mm. researched it in favour of doing a shall we say homage to the film mm. or a pastiche of the film which was then further diluted by the evil Rex Tucker and his <laughs> minions Can I assume <laughs> that it wasn't Cotton's idea to write about the gunfight at the O.K. in the first place then? Was, it, was he asked to write this? I think it was, was Wiles and I think the production notes imply it was Wiles and Tosh who came up with the idea of, well, let's do yeah. a Western. Mm. Well, explain why he, his heart doesn't seem to be quite as much in it as it was <coughs> with the Myth Makers, mm. and why he would research one way of doing it and then think, right, that's not going to work. I mean, it's not. You feel like with the Myth Makers, he knew how he was going to approach it from the beginning, even though I think last time I discussed it, we, just, we discovered that it wasn't actually his idea either, was it? It's not going to be the last time in Doctor Who, though, is it, that the history is somewhat inaccurate and you know they go for something very broad <laughs> mm. and i think to, i mean to some extent it's it's kind of irrelevant that the history is all wrong and, and i guess we, we see more of this in a town called mercy it, it, the mm. point of the last couple of episodes seems to be about this kind of dilemma that they've got you know masterson wants to, to go with the law but in the end mm. retribution seems to win the day mm. Is is Doctor Who allowed to do that? Is Doctor Who allowed to to spoof and parody? Because everyone here present today 
probably has a different take <laughs> to the chap I've replaced, who, when he's listening to this, he will be gurning and foam will be coming from his nostrils and mouth, <laughs> steam from his ears. And I don't care. You've I think it's that wonderful. Out. You've conjured me out of my time, Eddie. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Can you... Can you play in a, a William Hartnell <laughs> pling plong pling noise? So, I so, you're, so this is my replacement. My visage can appear. Yeah, a dandy and a clown. <laughs> Tell me something. What is the Gunfighters? It is not a historical story. No. Stop calling it that. It isn't. If they travelled back in time, <laughs> if the TARDIS landed in World War Two. And they, they were in Germany, and there was a bloke called Brian Hitler, and his right-hand <laughs> man was Winston Churchill. And nobody commented on it. Yeah. <laughs> they were just like, oh, we're in the Second World War, this is fun. <laughs> why is this, why, do, why are they not in the OK Corral having the same reaction as, as when they see bloody zeppelins in the sky <laughs> in alternate Earth in the Cyberman thing in the new series? Well, Why are they not going? Oh, well, these these he's not supposed to be here. This isn't how history's meant to be. Stevens from the future and Dodo's an idiot. Because they've only seen the movie, they don't know the. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. So you've got Stephen and Dodo. You know, Stephen's from the far future, and Dodo as <laughs> probably hasn't watched very much westerns. So, so he hasn't finished school. And, and the doctor's a bit a bit kind of um, out of it by this stage. So maybe they just haven't noticed. But I mean, <laughs> so, is, isn't so, it just as likely though that, that you know that basically the celestial toy maker is sending them through another oh another game or something? I mean, or, or or at least that is the mm, only explanation. Or, or, or at least it's like the master of the land of fiction. <laughs> yes, they're not they're not they're not really ended up in Tombstone. They've ended up somewhere else. You can say that again. I mean, the weird thing is, some of the decisions are so arbitrary, because you've got, I mean, you've got people like Bat Masterson, as you said, wasn't, he wasn't in Tombstone, he was somewhere else at the time. He was vaguely connected to these people, but uh, he wasn't there. But you've got Wyatt Earp's been made town marshal in the Doctor Who version. When it was his brother Virgil, he he was the actual town marshal. So yeah. they've just arbitrarily swapped them. And I appreciate this is because it, you know, this this uh, Wyatt uh, biography from the thirties. Yeah, and because it was Bert Lancaster in the movie. Yeah, so, but yeah. if you know anything about these events, it is the most surreal experience watching this thing that appears to be. Oh, the TARDIS has gone back in history. Oh, but they're different. Oh, there was no Reuben Clanton. Oh, there was no Seth Harper. Pa Clanton's supposed to be dead. There is no Phineas Clanton. Hang on, Ike Clanton wasn't killed in the... It's so weird. It's so weird. It's like watching a <laughs> Titanic movie, and the Titanic doesn't sink at the end. And you're just thinking, what? why is this called Titanic? What is going on here? Yeah. This is insane. It... And the weird thing is, it's, like, it's just like you were saying about the Myth Makers. But I'm, I'm reliably informed that if you've got a doctorate in history, some of the myth makers is funny because it's not how it was meant to be. So apparently if you watch the myth makers and you're, you're up to your eyeballs in the reality of it, quote unquote reality, you go, oh, that character's supposed to be a, 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 a tremendous uh, personality and a, and a courageous bloke. But in this, he's a simpering idiot. So that's allegedly hilarious. But if you're a normal person, you're just watching it thinking, <laughs> who's this simpering idiot? And then you have to have Tim and Toby Haydock explain to you later why it's funny. <laughs> but you're like watching the gunfighters having an out-of-body experience 
thinking, is this some just astonishing parody of the genre or just the Western subverting... is a modern myth. Yeah. Hmm. I, I, well, yes, but it's not like a myth where you have gods and Trojan horses and you just make stuff up and that becomes a myth. It's not a fictional story to begin with that has become embellished. It's a series oh. of people who were murdered and <laughs> and now their deaths are apparently just fair game. Or just murder people who didn't die at the time. <laughs> just bring Johnny Ringo in and have him die in a different place, in a different part of the country. It's mental. Or bring Sid James in as the Rumpo Kid. <laughs> why why not? It's meant We're losing him. Has somebody fiddled with the controls? We're losing Gav. We're... <laughs> He's going wish. all wibbly. You wish. You wish. And that, the weird thing is, the whole point of the gunfight, both the catalyst and both the, both the political background and the reason the actual fight took place are both perfectly clear and sensible and didn't need changing, and yet they are changed. Because it was, it was basically the, the city folk versus the country folk, and the Clantons were the country folk. And the the Erps didn't like them, and they didn't like each other. But it's so weird that the 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 story is re centralised around Doc Holliday, and the the Clanton's whole vendetta is against Doc Holliday, who you know he was a background character and he was a temporary policeman, in reality. Whereas in the Doctor Who, that he's uh, one of the Erps is like, oh, I'm not going to fight with him. He's an outlaw. You made him a bloody policeman in real life, you idiot. Anyway. <laughs> But so, again, he was Kirk Dun- he's Kirk Douglas in the movie. That's well, why this is the other thing. That's the, why he's your main. Yeah, well, that's why this, those are your two go-to this is why guys. It's interesting watching from the ether as I was eavesdropping uh, on your universe from my time, Eddie. It was fascinating to discover that, like with the MythMakers, apparently this is not as terrible if you've watched seventeen other things that this references. <laughs> so again, if you've done your homework. This isn't as bad as you think it is. That is the take home that I have learnt from the gunfighters. So it's it's good if you've watched too much other television and film, and it's bad if you've read too much history. So I think we know where Doctor Who's aimed, what what its audience mm. is. My my time eddy's destabilizing. <laughs> oh dear, I'm, <laughs> I'm fading away. I'm fading. So I think. Oh. I think going back to the question, is is Doctor Who allowed to pastiche genres and not be slavishly loyal to history? I think Gav's a no. That's the that's the problem with Gavin a podcast. He just doesn't really make it clear what he thinks. He's always so equivocal. I I like to think that that Cotton's vision was poking fun at an entire generation of people that have grown yeah. up watching western films yeah. hmm. every Saturday at the cinema yeah. and having a, a, a laugh at them. Is Doctor Who allowed to do it though? Gav says no. I mean, I mean, you're, you're, I mean you're right Tim, I mean it, you, you can't really overstate how much the western was a thing in, in this era. I mean, I, I mean of course this is, mm. this is before I was born but but very shortly afterwards, my dad's like 1881. Um, my, my, before you were born, <laughs> you mean 1966 <laughs> was before I was born. But very shortly afterwards, I'm you know I'm there with my dad and my granddad every Saturday afternoon watching I don't know the mm. High Chaparral or any any number of other Western Bonanza. series. Mm. Uh, and and so yeah, I mean it, it, it it's absolutely something that that people who watch Doctor Who in 1966 would be really very familiar with. In a way that mm. that when we watch it now, it's 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 dropped out of the scene. 
In this episode, I'm chatting with writer and radio producer Paul Hayes. So, hello, Paul, and welcome to Something Who. Hello, Richard. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's it's, it's very kind of you, and a great honour to be here. <laughs> Thank you. So, you, you've written a book called The Long Game, 1996 to 2003, the inside story of how the BBC brought back Doctor Who. And that's coming out from Ten Acre Films very soon in, in November, I believe. Yes, the 1st of November, yeah. Brill. And I guess, I mean, the title, one would imagine, is pretty clear, but is, is there a sort of opening premise that you want to discuss with us? You know, sort of just tell us a little bit more about what's in your book. Yes, well, the idea behind it was it, it was a book I wanted to read and it didn't seem to exist, so I decided I would just have to write it. And the idea is to tell the story of how we went from May 1996, the aftermath of the TV movie, mm-hmm. to September 2003, the point at which Doctor Who was recommissioned, and telling the story of, well, various things really, telling the story of the background and context of what happened at the BBC through those years, the changes at BBC One, the drama department, all across the corporation really, and how those changes affected and uh, helped to bring about what happened with the revival of Doctor Who so providing a lot of that background that Doctor Who sources don't necessarily often go into Mm -hmm. uh, how the careers of the people who ended up bringing the show back got them to that point in those places some of the other attempts at revivals that happened through those years for either film or television the rise of the the online services the BBC Doctor Who website which became a very important part of the story all these different elements which I felt there were All kinds of things that told bits of this story, things like the Doctor Forever documentary, The Unquiet Dead, on the Green Death special edition, Cavan Scott's articles in Doctor Who magazine in 2013. All kinds of different interviews and articles and documentaries had told bits and different strands of this story, but I never felt there was something that drew it all together in one narrative, if I can talk about it very grandly like that. So that's basically what I've attempted to do in this book, tell the story of all the different strands that were happening in those seven years and provide a bit of background and context as to how it all happened and why. So, Paul, I mean, I know you've spoken to a lot of people in the course of uh, of your book. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about you know how you got in touch with people and, and how enthusiastic they were about telling their stories? Yeah, I was very lucky, really. I got to speak to almost everybody that I asked. The only two people I... The sort of major figures who I didn't get to speak to were Russell T Davis, who uh, politely declined my my uh, attempt to ask for an interview, which would be obviously fine. But I mean, uh, the thing about not getting to speak to Russell is that it was almost the least damaging of of the major figures not to have in some ways because he has yeah. done so many interviews and written so much about this down the years. There's mm-hmm. a lot of his that I can quote from. Obviously, I don't just steal other people's work, but with proper you know attribution within the bounds of fair use, there's a lot of him. So he is definitely a presence through the book. And, mm. and what he felt both at the time and subsequently there's some very interesting bits there's a, a great little interview he did with Colt Times in 2000 where they were asking him about what the latest was with his you know involvement with Doctor Who and uh, he says in that obviously this is an exaggeration but it sort of reflects some of what maybe the outside view of the BBC drama department was at the time where he says uh, in this interview in, in May 2000 I think it was he spoke to them if it did happen I would only write it I would never produce for the BBC I would rather die so it just goes to show because the BBC drama department had been in a bit of a state in the late 90s and yeah it shows you how maybe not necessarily keen to work in-house for the BBC people were at that point but so it's quoting him from the time and, and from later and the only other person who I didn't really particularly get to speak who I really wanted to speak to was Peter Salmon who mm-hmm. was the controller of BBC One in the late 90s who had along with Mal Young and particularly Patrick Spence tried to get a, a Russell-led series off the ground at that point but sadly they couldn't because BBC Worldwide's 
film ambitions but yeah in mm. terms of, I, I was very lucky that everyone else basically said yes and, you know I, I don't know why because I'm a complete nobody you know <laughs> so that I wrote to people and just started explaining what I was doing I was writing this book that explained this particular story and I'd very much like to speak to them and would they and, and almost everyone was, was keen immediately the only person who sort of wanted to have a think about it was was Mal Young and Mal Young hasn't often spoken about Doctor Who yeah. I think he's done one podcast interview down the years about it and uh, he's spoken about it at perhaps one or two industry events. I know he did an interview, I think, for the Royal Television Society where he spoke a bit about it, but he hasn't often spoken about his involvement. Mm-hmm. So I approached him and uh, he said he'd like to think about it. But then eventually he got back to me and said yes. And I ended up doing a very long interview. Now, we, 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 we had a great long chat, about two hours, I think, we ended up speaking for. So it was fascinating to hear his his recollections and thoughts. But yes, it was mostly just either approaching people via, via social media or via companies that they were now working for. And yeah, just explain in some cases even finding out what companies people now worked at and just guessing what their email addresses would be from the normal format of those companies emails and dropping them a line and yeah nobody said go in i had a few people who just very politely said that they didn't want to speak to dan friedman said that he feels he's said everything he wants to say about doctor who down the years but yeah most people were were very happy to, to talk and chat so i was very lucky a lesson to us all, perhaps, that if you've got an idea or if you, you, you've got a passion, it's, you know, it's worth following it up because the worst that can happen is that people will say no. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, you know, nobody can have you arrested for asking them for an interview. <laughs> yeah. So it seemed almost in that period, I mean, there were, there were a number of different strands of Doctor Who at the time. So there was, as you mentioned, there, were the, there was the online stuff, the, the, the Death Comes to Time and a couple of, of other serials after the Schalke one, I think, was, was the, the last of those. There was, there was Big Finish as well, and Big Finish did, I suppose, come into the online to some extent as well. And then, of course, there, were, there was a, a, an ongoing series of, of novels as well. It some, sometimes felt like they were almost at, uh, at odds with each other in, or, or at least not all pulling fully in the same direction I mean how, how important do you think that, that those different strands were in the return or do you think they, that they were sort of just incidental well I think obviously the particularly important one as many people will know is the online strand because obviously death comes to time very successful and then as you say the online team at the bbc the cult website they teamed up with big finish to do real time and then the, the paul mcgann version of sharda yeah and then each of those had had illustrations by lee sullivan and they'd had increasingly ambitious animated elements things fading yep. in and out going across the screen that kind of thing and so then they get to 2003, or it might have been late 2002 when they started looking at it, but around that time they decide, could we actually make a fully animated Doctor? And so this is how Scream of the Shalker comes about. Right. And Scream of the Shalker becomes very important in the story because while they were first looking into making that, there was this whole, almost like an urban myth at the time, even within the BBC itself, even if you speak to high-powered BBC executives like Mel Young, Lorraine Hegacy, there was this idea that somehow the BBC didn't have the rights to make Doctor Who or that the rights to Doctor Who had somehow become complicated or messy Uh and the online team were aware of this and they decided well if we're going to make our own fully animated Doctor Who serial we'd better check to make sure we have the rights to do it yeah and the other reason they did this is because people kept emailing them during this time to say i've heard the bbc don't have the rights to make doctor who anymore because <laughs> lorraine hegacy would do interviews she was an interview she did with uh, on simon mayo's program on five live in september right. 2002 where she yeah. says she out and out says i'd like to commission a new series of doctor who we've been having some early discussions with people about it but the rights situation is 
complicated, you know, so we might not be able to do it. And Doctor Who fans would hear this, and and it just confused us all at the time, I remember, because we knew pretty much Doctor Who fans who, who were interested or cared in any way about this knew that Doctor Who had been created on BBC Time by BBC employees at the behest of BBC management. So how could the BBC not have the right to make <laughs> yes. it? So people would keep emailing the, the Doctor Who website about this, and they wanted to check it themselves anyway to make sure they could make Schalke. And so a researcher on the site, a man called Daniel Judd, who I've interviewed for the book, he was given the task by James Goss, who ran the site, to establish what the right situation with Doctor Who was. And so he asked all the people, went to the BBC Rights Group, BBC Worldwide, BBC Films, and what Daniel Judd established was that there wasn't any problem the BBC did own the rights to Doctor Who. There was no issue with the rights. There were certain writers, particularly obviously Terry Nation with the Daleks, owned elements that they had created yeah. for the programme. But the actual format of Doctor Who was not in question. Mm-hmm. So they put up this story on the 21st of August 2003 saying lots of people have been emailing us about has the BBC lost the rights to make Doctor Who? We've looked into it and no, BBC could commission a new series of Doctor Who tomorrow if it wanted to. And then four days later, on the 25th of August 2003, Lorraine Hegarty did an interview at the uh, Edinburgh Television Festival with The Guardian, where she spoke about how, again, she mentioned she'd like to bring back Doctor Who, but the right situation was too complicated to do that at the moment. And so because these were only four days apart, a lot of Doctor Who fans thought, well, hang on, Mm. this can't be right. So they started emailing in, and eventually (laughs) Lorraine Hegarty's office asked the BBC Online team for for their research, and so Martin Tricky and James Goss who ran the site, went over and spoke to her. So it was. It quickly became apparent to the BBC. I mean, there's a quote from Martin Tricky when I spoke to him, who was sort of ultimately in charge of the Doctor Who website. He said something like, so at this point, when, when the BBC, when BBC television suddenly turned around and said, well, shit, why aren't we making Doctor Who then? <laughs> uh, now, the timeline is slightly complicated here because we know that, Russell T. Davis's agent, uh, Bethan Evans, was first approached by Jane Tranter. Apparently Jane Tranter came up to Bethan Evans at the launch for the Canterbury Tales TV series and said, Russell, Doctor Who, we're doing it, tell him. And that was on the 6th of August, that was earlier in that month. So the right. timeline is slightly complicated, but mm. it, it, it does seem that it was the online team who established that there wasn't an issue with the Doctor Who rights. This whole myth that was within the BBC and outside the BBC that the rights had somehow gone or were mm. complicated wasn't the case and sort of opened the doors to, to everything that was, was to follow. The Brigadier, the Tegan seems to make a big impression on the Brigadier because here, when the Doctor mentions their name, he remembers, yes, I remember, he, he's full of his memories of Tegan. Doesn't seem to remember anything about, about Nyssa at all. No. And then this carries through into the Five Doctors where when he meets, when they all meet up again at the end in the Tomb of Rassilon, he goes to greet Miss Javanka before, mm. ahead of Sarah Jane Smith, who we mm. think he might have had a stronger connection with, so... Hmm, mm. there's a story there. Yeah, what are you suggesting Ma- there, Paul? Makes notes. No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Getting back to the pacing, it was like, hang on, what are you going to fill episode four with? Because it really gets to... Yeah. All of the pieces are in play in the places they need to be by, by the end of episode three. You've got everyone on the ship, and you've had the, you've had the issue explained. I was thinking, okay, how are you going to pad this out for 20 minutes of episode four before before the... The two brigadiers can meet up and. We all moan about the padding in episode threes, but that's where it belongs. You don't want it in episode four when you're racing to your conclusion. <laughs> Every time I watch it, I think, where's that awful bit with the terrible old age makeup with Tegan Nissa and then. Still to then come. Repl- <laughs> Yeah, it's in a very weird place. The, the end of episode three made me laugh so much. I, I, I couldn't think of another example where 
the the threat at the end of the episode is a hypothetical situation because it, it's a conversation where the baddies go, "Could you do this for us?" And the doctor <laughs> says, "No, because that would kill me." Roll credits, <laughs> and and it's just so bizarre. And I was thinking like. Because he's not being forced into it at that point. Because that's the whole point of the of the aging of Nyssa and Tegan is it forces his hand, so he has to acquiesce. But at the point where th- that jeopardy is proposed is at the end of episode three, where there's there's been no mention of the fact that he'll have to do it. So mm. Mordrin saying, "Please help us," and the Doctor says, "But if I do, it'll be the end of me as a Time Lord." And well, that's the equivalent of him going. But if I put my head in that meat grinder and turn it on, it might kill me. (laughs) If I attach these electrodes to my nipples and turn on the current, that might really hurt. So maybe just don't do it. That would be my (laughs) advice. It's just and 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 it's literally the resolution at the start of episode four. They go, oh well, let's not do that then, and they leave the room. (laughs) On on the plus side, twenty years after Terry Nation tells us the, 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 somebody the anecdote of the Georgian state dancers. We finally get these <laughs> characters shuffling across stage in these long costumes, sort of gliding along, except that nobody seems to have told you know, about half of them at the back. Yeah, the ones at the back. That's definitely what, yeah, I was thinking they've, they've practiced this, and yeah. then they've, they've come, come a point where they've thought, we haven't got time to get them all working, so we'll just put you lot at the front, and just <laughs> trying to hide these idiots at the back who haven't quite got it. Yeah, the one the front's really impressive. Yeah. And the, the and funny the... thing is, I, I was watching them thinking, that's that's really nice and interesting, but but why? <laughs> why I mean, but but let's let's just you know, creatively give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they don't have human legs. Maybe <laughs> they are a, like um colony sarf and they're just like a rolling mass of tendrils and it's all and that's why they're so smooth. But then you see, no, they come down the steps later, they've just got legs. So they, they walk down steps normally, and they get to the bottom, and then they do the gliding. And it's mm. like, well, that's that's an interesting choice. But yeah, they're aliens, so they just do alien things, don't they? Is that their brains in showing in their heads? Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, why? How many and times do we see it pulsating? Is it literally just the first time? Early on. I think Mordrin's does it early on, and then they give up on the... Uh, the thing is, only Mordrin has the has the pop of animatronic. Yeah. yeah, but even he keeps forgetting. He keeps forgetting to turn it on a bit, like like we played. Zay- I think. Do you think, do you think he's pumping it with his own hand? And... Yeah, I shouldn't come. I shouldn't admit this next bit because um, it just makes oh. me look like I was an idiot when oh, I was. Sounds good. When I was ten, watching this, but I remember thinking for some reason that episode three cliffhanger and in episode four, where the Doctor's faced with the dilemma of losing his upcoming regenerations. I think the re- that my excuse is that I was coming to the point where I was becoming a real fan. I was really reading up on the history of the program and getting very into it. And a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And I remember turning to my parents and saying, I've worked out where this story's going. He's going to give away his remaining lives and he is going to become human and then he'll stay on Earth again, you see, because just like the third Doctor used to stay on Earth and that's where they're going to go. They're the going to change the brigadier. program. Yeah, he'll be back with the Brigadier like in the yeah. I think that's, My parents were very interested in that theory yeah. i seem to remember mm. pat you on the head uh yeah with some force <laughs> <laughs> and if only they'd done that then the program wouldn't have been cancelled in two years time mm-hmm. what if his parents had 